Amen. Well, good morning, Redeemer. It is now Advent. Happy Advent, everyone. We, uh, we, we take a subtle approach here. We mix in some Advent songs. We have the candles here. So each week we'll light a, a new one until we get to the pink one. I'm sure it has an official name besides the pink one. But this is how subtle we are about our Advent celebrations. So what we're going to do is uh, actually finish up the sermon from last week because I literally just stopped in the middle and, and saved the, the conclusion for this week. But uh, the next three weeks after this going uh, through the rest of Advent into Christmas, we're going to be talking about the intertestimonial period and, and all of the nuance that was going on with all the various kingdoms and, and the expectations of a Messiah and why I think it'll help us understand a little bit why the Jews were so misled <laughs> as to what to expect from the Messiah once he came. But this week, what I want to talk about is the festal shout. Uh, the festal shout takes many forms. We heard uh, of one version from Joshua today in which they gave a mighty shout and the walls of Jericho fell. Um, and that is a version of the festal shout. There, there are others, and that's what I want to explain. That's how I want to conclude these two sermons about festivities. Because if, if you know, I, I like to say with Bavink, if theology doesn't end in doxology, you're not doing theology correctly, right? If, if you come to the end of your theological study and you're not singing the praises of God, you're not doing theology, not Christian theology. And a festivity, right, the difference between an event and a festival is the festal shout, that, that, that is the conclusion of the matter. If it doesn't end in a festal shout, it does. it's not a festival. So before we begin, let's pray together. Father, I thank you so much for Advent and this time to consider the long darkness, the long wait. Uh, we, we are waiting for Christ to return, but I, I think it's uh, a time of hope, a time where the end has invaded history and we know what's coming, I think, a little bit better than those saints who lived before the advent, the first advent of Christ. I thank you, Lord, that you've given us this deep understanding of your word, a deep understanding of your plan, a deep understanding of um, how you have conducted world affairs so that at the exact moment you desired, your son came forth. I pray that as we consider that, as we consider our own lives, as we consider uh, the context that we are living uh, out your promises now that you would teach us how to assent, how to affirm, how to shout our praises for who you are and what you are doing. We thank you and praise you in the name of your son and amen. amen. Now the heart of festivity, okay, a festival is not an event. An event is you can have an event, everybody shows up, there's nice food, nice clothes, nice wine, nice kabucha if you're into that kind of thing. But that doesn't make a festival. Right? Meditating on the Lord of life, using creation as a means of contemplating the grace of God, the overflowing gifts of God. This is true festivity. This is what it is. We, we're going to go back and just review for a moment from last week. It says in Romans chapter 1, verses 19 to 20, For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. And so when we receive what is made, we are receiving the one who made it. Right? Jesus said, if you, if you receive the one the Father sent, you receive the Father. If you receive creation, you receive the creator. And you can't do one without the other. You can't have the creator without creation. You can't have the creation without the creator. They go hand in hand. They go together. Now, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 17 to 18 adds to this. It says, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So our, <laughs> Paul says in Romans, Offer yourselves as a, as a living sacrifice, and this is our spiritual worship. So we take verses like these from Romans and Corinthians, you put them together, there, there is no separation of spirit and creation. You don't have earthly things over here and spiritual things over here. Where the spirit is, there the Lord is. And when you behold him, it has an effect, right? When we are beholding him, we are created, it has an effect on us. There's a bodily effect that it has on us. 
And this is what festivity is. When you gather around a table with people whom you love or people who need your love, and you are celebrating with them, this is a spiritual thing that has a body, bodily effect. Your heart palpitates. Right? The blood rises to your face. Your voice gets louder. Ask my family from Thanksgiving. As the day went on, I got louder and louder and louder. Right, Shirley? Yeah, Shirley was there. She knows. Because it's just the excitement of it. It's exciting. And, and when we come here, right, as we're singing, as, as we're hearing things and seeing things and experiencing things that we give approval to, we, it's hard to keep us quiet. As we gaze upon the Lord Jesus, as we contemplate the Lord Jesus, who is the creator and sustainer of life, honoring him, giving him thanks, we are carried up to his very presence. This is festival. This is a feast of the true manna of heaven. Worship is a share in the supernatural, superhuman abundance of life. Now, there are a variety of names for this phenomenon. Some call it renewal. Some call it transformation, restoration, rejuvenation, rebirth. This is what happens when we transcend the here and now and go before the face of the Lord in worship, go before the face of the Lord in festival, and feast upon him. He is the transcendent one, and so you transcend the here and now. You see beyond what is happening to you now, what you're experiencing now, what, what you think you understand about world events. Right? When we worship, we, we go outside of time and space, in a sense, and we are able to see everything around us in a new way. And when we are there, when we are before him, when we are gazing upon him, this is feeding not just our souls, but our bodies too. Men are swept away from the here and now as they contemplate the ground of existence And this is the experience of true festival, true happiness, true joy. The fruit of festival, for which alone it is celebrated, is pure gift. It is the element of festivity that can never be organized, arranged, or induced. Now, maybe, let me just give a real-world example of this. There have been times where I've taken my wife out on on a date, and we go to a restaurant, and everything comes together, and it's like magic. It's like beautiful. And I think later on, you know what I want? I want that again. And so what do I do? I was like, well, what was I wearing? <laughs> right? What restaurant did we go to? What food did I order? What wine did I drink? And I try to put the whole thing together exactly as happened before. And, and, and you know what happens often is the magic isn't there. Now, C.S. Lewis, his whole worldview had to do with this is, this is what he calls joy, this chasing after this feeling that sometimes just happens to us. It, it, it comes from outside. You can't manufacture it. You can't generate it. That's why so many people try to create a festive atmosphere by having these certain elements. But, but true festivity, true festival, is a gift that comes from outside. It cannot be arranged. It cannot be organized. It is only received. Now, maybe you know what I'm talking about. Maybe you've been sitting around with a group of friends, and, it's, and, and it, there's something to it, something magical about it. Something where the, the joy is real and palpable. You feel it, you taste it, you hear it. And it, and it is something that just happens. And in all kinds of areas in our lives, this happens to us. And it's something that comes from outside. Now, all we can do is prepare ourselves to receive this hoped-for gift. And maybe the idea of ritual purity is, in fact, this. We're, trying, we're preparing ourselves so that we may receive this gift from outside. We cleanse ourselves in confession and the promises of the gospel as a means to receive all inordinate loves, all the filthy things, all the distractions. We try to get rid of all of them. And and sometimes what happens when we do that is we receive this joy that I'm talking about, this delight that I'm talking about, that comes from outside. For a festival to emerge out of human events, something divine must be added, which alone makes possible the otherwise impossible. Thus, when a festival goes as it should, men receive something that is not in human power to give. And, and I think this is why when we approach festival, when you approach weddings, when you approach these things, there's a way to approach it where there's an expectation that something is going to invade from outside to make it different, make it special, to bring the joy that you're looking for. Now, we experience this in one sense on a daily, on a, in a daily way. Like, what happens when you get up and you give no thought to God? Right, where you're not preparing yourself to receive anything from him, you're just going about your business. Now, on those days, 
do you tend to have a lot of otherworldly joy? Right? Versus a day where you get up and you do, you prepare yourself. You get away, get out the filth, get out the inordinate loves, get out all the things that distract you from him out of the way. And on days where you begin that way, you're more likely to receive this otherworldly gift. Now, what makes Sunday partially so special and important is all the preparation we put into to prepare ourselves to receive this gift. And there are times where our worship services, there's something to them, something other, something otherworldly that occurs occasionally at them that isn't like other times. And I know that all of you have experienced this. Sometimes it's not just a worship service, it seems, right? Sometimes it it rises above that. The transcendent enters, enters, and and it becomes a very different kind of festival. Now, the real thing we are wishing is the success of the festive celebration itself, not just the outer forms, the enrichments, the trimmings, the event, but the gift that is meant to be the true fruit of it, renewal, transformation, rebirth, spiritual understanding, spiritual renewal. And this is eschatological, in two ways. Okay? When, we're, when this happens to us, we're, we're talking about entering in, as I said, the transcendent reality, the eschaton, that world where God lives outside of time and space, that place that we are all headed to. That's, it's something in the future that comes into the present. It's eschatological first because we are here participating in Christ's table, the wedding feast of the Lamb, which in Revelation chapter 19 says this is where we're all headed. Once the judgment is over, once the resurrection is over, we are all of us going to sit down in our festal um, robes at a feast with the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And so part of what's going on here is, is this transcendence where we're experiencing that eschaton now. It's also eschatologically individually. And this is, this is something that is a little, I think, harder, harder actually for us to understand. Because true festival as I have been arguing, is to stand before the gaze of Christ, to be seen and to look upon him. And this is where we're headed also at the resurrection, right? There will be a day, as Job says, where I will stand in the flesh and look upon my Redeemer. And he will look upon me. And so what what I'm preparing for on the Lord's Day, for this festival, is to experience that. Now, C.S. Lewis, in his phenomenal sermon, The Weight of Glory, talked about this this eschatological aspect, and, and this is what he said. He said, in a breath, in a time too small to be measured, at any time and in any place, all that seems to divide you from God and from other men will flee away, vanish, leaving you naked before him, like the first man, like the only man, as if nothing but he and you existed. And since that contact cannot be avoided, and since it means either bliss or horror, the business of life is to learn to love it. That is the first and greatest commandment. The business of life is to learn to love, to stand before the gaze of God, the Lord Jesus Christ himself, and to learn to love, to gaze upon him. Now, the Christian life is all about this. When you sit down in the morning and you open your script, the scriptures, you are gazing upon the Lord Jesus, and he is gazing upon you through his word. And, and the point of life is to learn to love it, not just do it. And there are times when you sit down, I know, and we just do it, like the Nike commercials. But there are other times when we sit down, and it as, it's as if we are standing before him. It's as if we are gazing upon one another. Now, that everyday kind of living is what we come here and we practice doing together. Right? This is I, I, how many times I, I make this joke all the time. We are weird people who stand in a room shoulder to shoulder and stare at a wall. Now, that is the common experience. But there are, are times, which, which Steve loves to testify to, that it seems as if we are not just looking at a wall, but we are in our worship beholding God himself, not only seeing him, but are being seen by him. Now, what is a festival? That is a festival. Okay? A fe- <laughs> that is what is at the heart of a festival. 
And that is what needs to come into our everyday lives. When we are sitting down to table together, when we are opening our Bibles, when we are experiencing life and its ups and downs, we are receiving this. And what we need to see is that we're doing all of it quorum Deo, before the very face of God. And the point of life is to not only do it, but love it. But love it. And so when we're talking about festival, as I said last week, I began this way, we are really talking about everything. True festivity, the walls of the here and now are burst asunder, and the everyday realm of existence is thrown open to eternity. And these realities are realized in the joy of the celebrant. To celebrate a festival means to enter into the presence of the living God himself, which is what the weekly Lord's service is all about. This is what it says in Hebrews chapter 12. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. And sometimes when we are here together worshiping, doesn't it feel just like that? It feels just like that. It feels, it seems to us, as if we are gathered with angels in festal robes, with the innumerable saints. We transcend time and location, and it feels as if we're experiencing more right, than a concert in a strip mall. And, and, and I'm going, that, that is what we are striving for in life, and not only that, but it's what we're trying to teach ourselves to love. All our festivals are to take on this reality, an unobstructed access to the source of all life and joy. In celebrating festivals festively, man passes beyond the barriers of the present life on earth. It is a, this is a liberation. This is freedom. Through it, the celebrant becomes aware of and may enter into the greater reality, giving a wider perspective to the world of everyday work. Thomas Aquinas said that creation is first and foremost of all divine gifts. It is the chief gift. He portrays Sunday as the model of all festive celebration, where we take all these elements from around creation and we bring them together, guitars and candles and bread and wine and clothes and chairs and warmth right, and, and lights. We bring all these elements of creation in here and we put them to their true purpose. And this teaches us what we are supposed to do with all of the objects in the created order every day. The day of worship for Christians is a time to particularly celebrate what underlies not only all festivity but all of life, the Lord Jesus Christ. We are here particularly celebrating him. So the day of worship is for Christians every week serves both to recall the beginning of creation, why we were made, and, the, and the, to herald to us the future bliss of the marriage supper of the Lamb, as I already said. And in this summoning to a vision of both the beginning and the end of time, it throws open that wide, that infinite horizon which the great festivals must have. What makes Sunday Christian is its relation to Christ, a celebration of his incarnation, which reached its full fruit and revelation in his resurrection, the Lord then ascended bodily to the right hand of God in heaven. And so when we come here, the, the, the sacrifice that we're offering is him. And what are we celebrating? Every week when we come here, what are we celebrating? We're celebrating Christmas. We're celebrating Easter. We're celebrating Ascension Day. We're celebrating Pentecost. We're celebrating all of it. And so th this, for me, is the primary argument is why this is actually more important than any liturgical annual calendar that you can have. Weekly Lord's Day worship. Because when you come here, you're celebrating the whole thing. Him. He came in the flesh. He lived in the flesh. He died in the flesh. He was raised in the flesh. And he ascended in the flesh. And so here we are in the flesh, fixated on that. On him. And when we do that, we're learning again how it is we are to live our everyday lives. The Lord's service pulls back the curtain and shows us 
that Christ is, in fact, the culmination of all God's promises and is, in fact, the, culmin- or the focal point of all of creation. Now, Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 to 20. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. He's the focal point. And when we come here, what we do is we we pull back the curtain and we gaze upon him. Fully and completely. And, and not only that, we, we, are, we see him, but we are seen by him in a very special way, at a very special time and place together so that we would go out into the world and live this way all the time. That's why week in and week out, the same service, the same shape, the same shape again and again and again. Why? because you are sheep and children, and he's trying to teach you, listen, listen. Behind the bank accounts, behind the cars, behind the house, behind the education, behind the children, behind the politics, behind the grocery store, undergirding all things is the Lord Jesus Christ. And he is the point of all of it. And when you come here, you learn how to receive him. It is our besetting sin to forget him and his work. How often do we see miserable Christians wasting their half-lives in bitterness, their heads buried firmly in melancholic marriages and soulless busyness, almost enjoying their narrow nitpicking, molding insignificant faults into eternal weapons, Stand up and grow up is what we want to say. Life is short, and you have forgotten the the most important thing in life. So come to the worship service, repent, and then let us teach you again how you are to live your everyday life. Celebration, like good stories, puts things into their true perspective. It reminds us of the eternal importance. The wisest man in the world, Solomon, taught us that there is nothing better for a man than that he should eat and drink, and that he should make his soul enjoy good in his labor. This also I saw, that it was from the hand of God. Now, how do you go out, right? Think about the work that you have to do tomorrow. Think of that work. Now, is that work a gift? Right? Ladies, I, right? think of the basket or the floor covered in laundry. Think of all the food you have to cook this week, the pounds and pounds of food. Think of the bills you have to pay. Think of the, the miles you have to drive. Is all of that a gift? It either is or it isn't. It's either a gift or a curse. This is the God that we're serving. He gives only two things, blessings or cursings. So to see the work itself as a blessing, to receive it as a blessing, to receive it as an opportunity, a created thing, through which we can see the transcendent Lord, is to rise above your, your, your fallen nature in Adam and to see what's really going on, not just here on Sunday morning, but in your everyday lives. Complaint the flag of ingratitude, waves above unbelieving hearts. Romans one twenty one. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. And we see this all around us. We see this all around us. We know God. right? If you're, you're sitting there, and, you're, and your aunt calls, and she gives you bad news about some family member who has died or has gone missing, You open your email and you get bad news. Who is the sovereign Lord behind it? We know. We know. And so in that moment, do we thank him or not? Because, right, this is why we have to be taught to look beyond the here and now. Because even the terrible things that come to us 
Are they a blessing or a curse? In his hands. In his hands aren't even the curses, in a sense, blessings. Right? This is why true tragedy can't exist. And, and there's a great number of authors, including Shakespeare, who tried to prove this. It's really hard to write real tragedy. You know why? Because eventually all the tombs will be opened, and all the characters will come out, and everything will be put right, and we, will, we won't be able to see everything like he does, but we will, we will look at him. And when we look at him, everything will be put in its proper order. And we'll be like, what thing? I don't remember the thing. All I see is him. Right? There's, my kids, we, we get into these arguments. Is there going to be a, an ice cream shop in heaven? You know, are we going to have pet stores? Are we going to have labor? Uh, this one, I like to, yeah, my son's shaking his head no even now, right? I try to convince him there would even be money in heaven. Because what's money, really, truly, except a stand-in for labor? So I trade my labor to you anyway. The point is, I, I like to get into these details. It's fun. But I have to even remind myself, you know what? All of this stuff, I actually, it's hard for me to tell you what we're even going to care about. Because it doesn't make sense to me. I mean, we are going to just stand there and gaze upon the Lord Jesus for the next unending amount of time. It's hard for me to even comprehend such a thing. Because it's so hard to see him here. To then just get full access and I'm staring at I imagine I won't care about anything. And that is the only way I could stand there for eternity. I have a hard time believing we're just going to stand around staring at eternity. But it makes sense to me on one level why we would. Because he's the most glorious, most beautiful focal point of all things. You gaze upon him. Who cares about ice cream? Well, except him. Anyway. <laughs> he cares. He has ice cream cones and bunnies. But I'm not going to argue about it because what, what really we have to understand is we're going to a place where all of these things that we think matter more than him are no longer going to matter more than him. And, and why we come here and we go through this process every week is because he's trying to teach us there is something more important. There's something bigger than your problems. There's something bigger than America. There's a, a nation, a commonwealth, as Paul tells us, that is bigger than the United States. In the EU and, 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 and you know, the world governments can try to get bigger than God's kingdom, but how are they ever going to do that? We, we, could, right, we could let one global government take over this whole country and let them colon, start colonizing other planets in the solar system, and their kingdom still won't come close to as big as God's. And this is the transcendent stuff we learn when the curtain gets pulled back and we see the one who made all things and who is the focal point of all things. Now, St. Augustine, he defined worship in these terms. Worship takes place, he said, by the offering of praise and thanksgiving. Right? Just like from Romans. What's the difference between those with a darkened mind and those who have an enlightened mind? The enlightened minds recognize God for who he is and thank him. That's, that's what worship is. That's what's happening when we praise and thank him. The church itself uses this word thanksgiving for the sacramental offering. The Eucharist means thanksgiving. Now, underlying all festive joy is a universal affirmation. Okay, This is where we take the turn. How, how is it that we receive all of these things from him? When we come here and the veil is torn back and we can see... Who is the point of all of human history, where it comes from, and where it's going? What is our response to that? Well, in Romans, we thank him and we praise him. We, we, right? He's not silent, so we don't remain silent. Man cannot have the experience of receiving what is loved unless the world and existence represent something good to him. Whoever refuses assent to reality is incapable of joy or festivity. Therefore, a culture that denies the basic elements of, of reality, such as there is a thing called a woman, and we can define what it is, right? What, how many people are, are rejecting the reality that God has made? And we'll go back to, if you reject the one who the Father sends, you reject the Father. If he has sent creation and we refuse to accept it, we refuse to accept him. Now, if we accept him, we have nothing but joy and festivity. If we deny him, we have nothing but misery and brokenness. Asedia is what it's called, slothfulness of the heart, a refusal regarding the very heart and fountainhead of existence itself. Right? I, I don't even, right, this is modern philosophy. I don't even, I can't prove that I exist. 
I can't prove anything. Actually, I can't pre- even prove that I'm standing here talking to you. And, and it, it, this, is what we're, this is what philosophy has come to. Now, how? How do we know this? Well, look around. People don't exist. Right? What, it's they, them. What, what is that? Right? You have a name. You have chromosomes. Right? You, there's some DNA involved. But, but what, what they're essentially saying is they don't exist. And you, why? Because they, they deny creation. They deny reality. And therefore, they deny the creator and the one who, who made reality what it is. And so you see, this is a long way of making the argument, that the essential element of worship is the thing that's missing. This is why we're calling people to worship, because we're calling them to, to come here, to hear who created the world, what he's doing in the world, what he intends for the world. We, we are explaining reality to people, and you're either giving assent to it, or you are not. So, so this, the whole COVID thing, this, this sermon's been coming for a long time. <laughs> because what I found during that whole thing is people, you don't understand what a worship service is. This is what I found. People just don't know what is going on while we're here. And like, I, 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 I'm not going to be told not to do it simply because I don't like to be told not to do things. I don't like to be told not to do things. But that's not the point. The point is, no, I have to go. I have to stand before him. I have to look upon him. I have to be seen by him. I have an appointment. I need to go and receive reality from him, not you, and assent to it. And over my dead body, will they take it away from us again? Because it's not just something that I can beam to your house through a television screen. What we are doing when we are coming here is he is speaking. He is telling us who he is, what he has done, what reality is, and we are assenting to it or we are not. And this is what I mean by the festal shout. Psalm 66.1, shout for joy to God all the earth. And when we say that, what we are saying is come, kneel before him, receive from him the reality that he created, and assent to it, affirm it. Now, he doesn't need our affirmation any more than he needs us. He doesn't need our affirmation any more than he needs our love. He did not create us because he needed some love. Okay? He didn't create us... Like, like the way that we make dolls for our daughter because she's lonely and she needs a friend, so here, let's make her a doll. Okay, the boys are, are bored, so we need to create something to give them something to do. The Trinitarian God isn't that way. He, right, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit were perfectly content with, within themselves. They, didn't, they weren't bored, and they didn't need anyone to love because they had all the love of one another. So when I say affirm in worship, people get a little uncomfortable. But, but this is what he wants. He, he put a rainbow in the sky. Why? Right? So that he would remember. He wants a, right? Why does he want us to pray to him? Is it, is it because he doesn't know? So when I say he, comes, he wants us to come here and receive reality from him, and we affirm it, it's not because he's a needy little monster, but it's because this is what true relationship is. Think about relationships. If you stopped affirming your wife, how long would your marriage last? Don't take me up on this deal. <laughs> right? And, and, and if, if people realize simply how affirmation works, yes, I affirm you, I hear you. Okay? I don't agree with you. <laughs> I, this is also important. I don't necessarily agree with you, but I am, I'm hearing what you are saying, and I, I affirm you. Right? Your kids, what are they looking for? Affirmation. Now, you have to give them instruction, but how many of us think that what they, they absolutely must have is discipline, take or leave affirmation. Right? Then you have this world where all they, they think, oh, all they need is affirmation, forget discipline. But children need discipline, they need affirmation. They need to hear what they didn't do well and get instruction, and they also need to be heard, they need to hear. This is how we work, and whose image were we made in? God didn't make us so that we could just go about doing whatever we wanted. Right? Adam and Eve refused God's reality. He said, here is a garden, here is a tree, don't eat it. And Adam was like, no way, I'm going to eat it. He did not receive, he did not affirm, and what happened? Right? What was the purpose of Adam being there? It was to enter into this worship relationship where the God speaks from heaven and Adam from earth says, Amen. Amen. That is not a tree I'm going to eat off of. That is not a thing I'm going to do. That is not something I'm going to attempt myself. 
And so when we come here, it's the same thing. God says, look, this is reality. This is who I am. This is what I have done. This is what I am doing. This is where we're going. And our response is amen, amen, amen. Because in, in, in modern parlance, that's what the amen is. It's the festal shout. It's the thing we say heartily. Now, some of you are Christians, and you've heard the word amen all the time. But there is a phenomenon at CRC churches, and I get teased about this by, by other Christians, when, because whenever we sing a song in a group, at the end, I'm always like, amen, as loud as I can. And they're like, oh, the CRC guys. They can't help themselves but shout amen at the end of songs. And I say, Amen. You're right. Yeah. <laughs> right? And, and, and because there is an element in our worship. Why do, why do we say amen so much? Now, if you look, you'll hear people in the church say it sometimes. People who have been going to the church for a long time, you'll hear them say amen. But you'll also see the word amen slapped on all kinds of things. Why do I say amen at the end of the sermon? Why do we say it at the end of songs? Why, when I'm baptizing someone, I say, okay, everybody approve, accept the reality that we just gave, and your part in it by giving us a hearty amen. Gabe repents, and I said, okay, we're going we're gonna to forgive him together as a group, and what do we say? Yay! No, we said amen. The Christian liturgy is, in fact, an unbounded yay and amen. That's what the whole thing is. We are receiving, and, and so what we are doing is responding. Hallelujah, hail, praise, glory, thanks. There's all kinds of words that you can use. Generally, it's amen. It's our festal shout, a great acclamation, composed of reiterated exclamations, and we do it again and again and again. We're receiving again and again and again, and so we affirm it again and again and again. A festival becomes true festivity only when man affirms the goodness of his existence by offering a response of joy. To celebrate a festival means to live out for some special occasion in an uncommon manner the universal assent to the world, to receive it from God by affirming it. Amen has much more significance than merely being the last word in a prayer. (laughs) It's just like, you know how the French films end and it just says, fini. Right? That's not what amen means. It's not just like the thing we slap on the end to let everyone know it's over. In the 30 times that it is used in the Old Testament, amen nearly always occurs as a response to what has occurred. The significance of the response is that with it, the people adopted what had just been said as if it were their own words. For example, in Deuteronomy 27, 15 through 26, Amen appears 12 times as the people respond with amen after each statement of a curse directed toward those who disobey God. The congregation says amen. Yes, I agree. That is what we should do. <laughs> Similarly, amen is used as a response after statements of promise, Jeremiah 11:5, of praise and thanksgiving, 1 Chronicles 15, and as a conclusion to the first four of the five books of the Psalms. At the end of the book, it says amen at the end. Why? Because we, the reader or the singer, says, yes, I affirm everything that's been said. These are my words too. I receive it and I make it my own. The only exceptions in the Old Testament are two occurrences. One is Isaiah 65, 16. It says there the phrase, the God of amen, stresses that God is the one who is firm. That is, he is completely trustworthy and faithfully fulfills his promises. He's the God of amen. He says something, and he immediately says amen. Amen, amen, amen. He's constantly affirming what he said he's going to do. Now, amen in the New Testament uh, is given preceding statements, um, just like in the Old Testament. This is what they do. In the New Testament, something is said, and people say amen. Why? Because they're receiving it. They're affirming it. They're taking hold of it. In doxologies and benedictions and the giving of thanks and prophecy and statements of praise. 1 Corinthians 14.16, a responsive amen is given after a statement of thanks was a means for worshipers to participate by showing agreement with what was said. Revelation 7.12, amen occurs both at the beginning and the end of the statement. Amen, he makes a statement, and he says amen. This is what Jesus means when he says verily, verily. He's emphasizing that this is something to be received. Now, in 2 Corinthians 
It's, or, yeah, Jesus is viewed as God's yes. Okay, in 2 Corinthians one twenty, it says Jesus is God's amen to all of his promises. Now think about that for a moment. So God makes all these promises through the Old Testament, all these years of waiting, all of these sacrifices, all the sacrificial system, all the history of Israel, all the history of all of the nations coming and going hither and thither on the earth, and Christ comes, and that's God the Father saying amen to everything he promised us. So the word amen is something that we need to think a little bit about when we're saying it, because it's an affirmation. Right? When we're talking about amen, we're talking about Christ himself. There can be no more radical assent to the world than the praise of God, the lauding of the creator of the world. Only then can we conceive a more intense, more unconditional affirmation of being. Now, the heart of festivity is men's affirmation of who God is, what he has made, what he is doing. And then secondly, the Lord Day is the most festive form that festivity can possibly take. Right? If you want to know how Thanksgiving ought to be conducted, look at a worship service. Not an event, but one in where people are actually gathering, actually receiving from the Lord and affirming him. They have cleaned themselves. They receive from the Lord. They say amen to the reality that God is demonstrating in the service. This is what all of our festivities are supposed to be like. On Christmas morning, are we just opening presents? On Easter Are we eating lamb in the afternoon and drinking red wine just because it tastes good? Right? On your birthday, when you have a cake and there's candles on it, what is that all about? When when we talk, right? When you take your wife out for your anniversary, is it just something that you got to do so she doesn't complain? Right? What are all of our festivities about? All of our festivities are about receiving something that we did not deserve from someone who loves us very much and, and, and giving assent to it, affirming it with visible displays of amen, verbal displays of amen, physical displays of amen. Psalm 89, 15 to 16. Okay, now I can finally get to what the verse of this whole sermon was actually about. That was all my introduction to just reading this. Sometimes preaching's weird. Psalm 89, verse 15 to 16. Blessed are the people who know the festal shout, who walk, O Lord, in the light of your face, who exalt in your name all the day, and in your righteousness are exalted. I'm going to read it again. Psalm 89, verse 15 to 16. Blessed are the people who know the festal shout, who walk, O Lord, in the light of your face, who exalt in your name all the day, and in your righteousness are exalted. The shout is an affirmation of God's providential and covenantal faithfulness to us. It says walk in verse 15. It pictures a procession, a constant joyful progress. Now think, wait, wait. <laughs> Joshua, what were they told? Give the shout on the seventh day and go straight ahead. Now did you notice that they repeated that several times? Because we give the festal shout and we don't turn to the right or the left. We go straight ahead. The walk of verse 15 is to be all day. This is what John meant in 1 John 1, 5 through 7. This is the message that we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light, that in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him, face-to-face fellowship with him, while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. We are supposed to come here and give our festal shout, and then proceed from here into the workaday life straight ahead. Now, did you realize that when you're coming here every Sunday, that what we are doing is, is repeating the Battle of Jericho? Did you realize that? People are like, what is he talking about now? <laughs> right? Here, here we are, we, and we are the people of God. We are the army of the Lord. We are the priests of all, right? all, all of us are priests. We're kings and queens in Narnia. And what we are doing while we are here is giving, right? marching around, standing around. We're doing the, 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 the people who are leading us are, are not guys with swords, but guys with trumpets or guitars, instruments. 
If you start thinking about what they're doing, this is what we're doing. We're going around and around and around. We come back every week, come back every week, right? And what we do is we give a festal shout, and the walls of Jericho go down, and we go forth, and we conquer, and we plunder, and we take ground. And people think that this is just something we do to get away from the world. But this is what we do to soften up the world. (laughs) This is what we do. We soften it up. And how? We give a festal shout. The festal shout is the cry of joyful homage. Psalm 33.3, sing to him a new song, play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. Psalm 47.5, God has gone up with a shout, the Lord with the sound of a trumpet. The festal shout, if you recall, greeted the ark in 1 Samuel chapter 4. Remember this, as soon as the ark of the covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout so that the earth resounded. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, what does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And when they learned that the ark of the Lord had come to the camp, the Philistines were afraid. The presence, the ark of the Lord himself, comes into their midst. The reality that is behind and undergirds all things comes into the very camp of Israel. And what is their response but to affirm and to give a festal shout? And the world trembles. And we think that we're just standing in what used to be a goodwill, staring at a wall. Sometimes that's all we think. But the, the only way ahead, the only way to work, to, to fight the culture war, the only way to raise our families, the only way to go into our workplaces and go straight on is to come here and to give the festal shout, to receive God's reality and to affirm it by giving a festal shout. This is our warfare. This is what we are meant to do to overcome the world. Our festal shout is warfare because worship is warfare. Doug Wilson, in his sermon, Worship is Warfare, said, Worship is not a retreat from the church's work of conquest. Worship is a fundamental strategy of the church militant. The world is out there thinking that it's winning, thinking that there is no God, acting as if he doesn't exist. They're darkened minds, rejecting the reality of God, and they think, oh, no one's going to overcome us, right? Just like the dead guy that was in the tomb, he's not going to overcome us, we killed him. The Romans were like, you know what, let's just put all these little Christians, these weird Jews, which is what they thought they were at first, these weird little Jews, these Christian people, let's just kill them all. You know what we ought to do is shut all the churches down. Now, how often has the world gone about its business, its power plays, and the thing that overcomes the world are a bunch of normal, everyday people sitting down before the face of God, being seen and seeing him, giving their assent to what he is, who he is and what he's doing, And this is actually what's overcoming the world. It's hard for us to believe, but this is what he's calling us to. That's why when we are coming here, we're not just coming here because it's the thing we do on Sundays, right? I don't want to get a call from anybody. Where were you? What were you doing? Right? A couple weeks in a row. Eventually they call me. So you know what I'm going to do? You know what's easier? I'm just going to go. Is Is that going to overcome the world? Peter Lightheart, in Against Christianity, wrote this. Worship is political science 101. In every worship service, the Christian ecclesia is renewed in her unique story and language, her unique political experience and vocation. Every worship service is a challenge to Caesar, because every Lord's Day we bow to a man on the throne of heaven, to whom even the great Caesar must bow. O'Donovan claims that all political order rests on a people's homage to authority, which is to say, on an act of worship. Every Lord's Day, the church is reconstituted as a polity whose obedience is owed to Christ and that we are taught to name Jesus as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. We come here and we receive what? The Lord Jesus Christ, who is above all authority and power on earth and in, right, in, in all of creation. He sits atop of it. And we come here and we see that reality We are seen by that reality. We experience that reality. We give our festal shout, and we go straight on from here. Because we're we're, we're reunited. We're re-equipped. We we come back here, and we remember who we are and who we serve and what we're to be about, which is not the everyday power plays of the world, but of love and service and joy. People who thank God and know God and remember God and praise him as God. Every Lord's Day, this reality is affirmed, we receive it, we affirm it, and we go into the the world carrying this festal shout with us. 
Joy is the response of a lover receiving what he loves. Our ingratitude for God's providence and creation is a refusal to love and rejoice in what is received. Men must give their assent. Men must affirm creation. They must affirm providence. No one can rejoice absolutely for joy's sake alone. To be sure, it is foolish to ask a man why he wants to rejoice. Joy is an end in itself. And what is joy? To see and to be seen. To receive and give thanks. Possessing or receiving what one loves, whether in the present or hoped for in the future or remembered in the past, joy is an expression of love. It's a festal shout. It's an affirmation. We have received something. We recognize that it is good, and we affirm that it is good. God looked at what he made and said, this is very good. And so why do we sit in our homes week in and week out and look at what he made and what he's doing and say, this isn't good? What all of us need is to go down to the house of the Lord together to receive reality from him and and affirm it by saying, yes, me too, I'm all for this. What, What he calls love, what he calls marriage, what he calls good, what he calls bad, what he calls joy, what he calls sorrow, that is the reality that we receive or we don't. And so those of us who think festivities are simply about red wine and ribeye for its own sake don't get it. People who think all of that stuff, no, you don't, it's all spiritual. You don't need all that stuff. It's a waste of money. It's a waste of time. It's a waste of resources. Those people don't get it either. Throughout history, the people who have made the biggest difference in this world are those who thought the most of heaven. And so when we come here, we recalibrate. We, our eyes are open to see the true reality behind everything and to receive it, to affirm it, to rejoice in it. And then to go straight on and to carry that festal shout into our workplaces and our homes and to the communities that we live in because that is what's going to knock down the walls. That is what's going to give us an opportunity to plunder the enemy. That is what's going to advance us in this world, individually, as families, as a collective group, as a church in North America. So this is the point. When you come here, what are you doing? When you are sitting there, what's happening to you? When you hear all the things you're hearing coming from up here, what's your response? Does it have any effect on the rest of your life? And and when we go from here, and, and we participate in all of these parties and festivals and events outside in the world, what makes it true worship? What makes it true festivity? Is, are we carrying this way of understanding the world into the world? Because I, I, I don't think we can talk about what's lawful and not lawful on a Sunday. I don't think we can talk about what holidays and not what holidays to celebrate. I th- what do we do on Sunday? What do we not do on Sunday? That whole thing, we, don't, we, we're not, we weren't ready for that conversation because we don't know what, what is happening. Right? Most of us are not ready for the cultural roles because we don't know at the heart and center of, of the strategy that actually what is needed of us. And what's needed of us is here together right now, this. And this sets a tone. But it doesn't matter if we don't take it forth with us. And so when you hear God speak to you from up here in the, in the various forms that he does, hear the reality that he's explaining to you, who he is and what he's doing and where we're going, Give a hearty amen. Give a festal shout. And then go straight on from here into the world, carrying that festal shout with you. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Amen. Father, we thank you so much for your goodness and kindness to us. We thank you for the Lord's Day. We thank you for the worship service. We thank you for the all-sufficient sacrifice of your Son. We thank you, Lord, for um, through your word, through song, through prayer, through confession, through forgiveness, through the table, that you are in fact instructing us in the reality, the true reality, the created order as you made it. And I pray, God, that all of us would receive it with joy and gratitude and thanksgiving and with a festal shout. And amen.